Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, hosted by Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. We set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance and support for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Today we are chatting to Ali Land, author of Sunday Times bestseller, Good Me, Bad Me. Prior to writing her book, Ali worked as a children's mental health nurse. Today we talk to her about how that experience helped shape her book, her strict approach to writing, and what it's like to achieve worldwide success with your very first book. Up eight, up another four, the door on the right, the playground, that's what she called it, where the games were evil and there was only ever one winner. When it wasn't my turn, she made me watch. A peephole in the wall asked me afterwards, What did you see, Annie? What did you see? Forgive me when I tell you it was me. It was me that told. The detective. A kindly man, belly full and round. Disbelief at first. Then, the stained dungarees I pulled from my bag. Tiny. The teddy bear on the front peppered red with blood. I could have brought more. So many to choose from. She never knew I kept them. Shifted in his chair, he did. Sat up straight, him and his gut. His hand. I noticed a slight tremor as it reached for the telephone. Come now, he said. You need to hear this. The silent waiting for his superior to arrive. Bearable for me. Less so for him. A hundred questions beat a drum in his head. Is she telling the truth? Can't be. That many. Dead. Surely not. I told the story again. And again, same story. Different faces watched, different ears listened. I told them everything. Well, almost everything. Hello, everybody. We are here today with Ali Land, author of Good Be, Bad Me. Um, Ali, hello. Hello. Amy is also here. <laughs> hello. Hello, Amy. <laughs> um, for anyone who doesn't know what your book is about could you tell us a little bit about what good me bad me is about i sure can so it is a psychological drama about a girl called annie who's 15 she hands her mum into the police her mother is a serial killer so everyone's spitting into their drink as they hear this (laughs) um and she's given a new new identity as millie and placed in the foster family in london and she is basically going to be the star kind of witness against her mother in court and she has a new foster sister called phoebe who hates her guts who bullies her intensely and we just start seeing the tension building on millie as the story goes through and millie herself trying to work out whether she is indeed destined to be bad just like her mother <laughs> it, um, it's, such, it's such an interesting concept. It's such a great concept. That idea as well of like, you know, what your genetic heritage is in terms of not just, you know, physical, but, you know, mentally and stuff. And that it's like the shadows that are hanging Absolutely. over Absolutely. I mean, the actual, the, the premise for Give Me Baby is born out of a conversation I had about that with a 15-year-old girl. So I was a children's mental health nurse for 10 years and this girl I'd looked after for three months, she had been harming herself quite seriously and she told me one night after three months of looking after that the reason why she was doing that was because she was convinced she would become like her mother who had been involved in the serious harm of young children. So that kind of notion for me haunted me as a young nurse and I held on to it for like nine years and then I wrote this book. So I never thought I'm going to write a book like when I had that conversation but I guess I just couldn't get over the idea that imagine being a teenager and thinking like, 
your your destiny was already mapped out yeah. you know in, in a really dark way so yeah, yeah so I saw a lot of that looking after young people the genetic influences oh, we'll probably come on to that <laughs> as we go through but um, yeah, so so I was going to say, do you remember where you were when the idea came to you? But clearly, that well, I think like that, yeah, that conversation. But it, it took me like once I'd finished the book, I was able to reflect on where the idea came from. It was a very like kind of wild experience writing the book. The first draft kind of tore out of me in like four and a half months during the night because I was working sixty five hours a day. So guys, you can write when you have day jobs. People all say six to me, oh, I don't have to write six, I mean, six five hours a week. week. Yeah, just to clarify. Yeah, do I say okay. a day? Yeah, but <laughs> I can imagine it might super magic. Me, it might have felt like that sometimes. It really did. Well, because I was working as a private PA nanny, I gave up nursing to write this book because two things, like the psychological energy that I needed, I wouldn't have had had I still been working as a kid's nurse. But also I felt like, oh, if I'm writing about these kind of kids, I can't really be looking after them as well. Yeah. So there was this moral kind of debate. So I became a PA nanny for two years whilst I wrote this book. So. Okay, cool. <laughs> it's totally different. But yeah, 65 hours a week, long days. Yeah. But yeah, I wrote through the night, so... So you did, so you're writing, you, you, that's what, that was your kind of thing, you, you'd Yeah, I finished work, work yeah, like 7 till 7.30, I worked with the kit, with the family, and then I babysit two nights a week, so maybe about 10.30, 11 o'clock at night, I would feel ready to, like, create, it would take me a couple of, couple of hours to come down from the day, and then I would sort of create from about 11 o'clock at night till about 2 or 3 in the morning, and then get back up and work again at 7, so wow. I know, <laughs> I, I was like... catatonic by the end of it, and Penguin were like, when I got my book deal, they were like, go away and rest, <laughs> and I was like, no, I have to keep writing, <laughs> they were like, no, and they made me have three months off, so yeah. yeah. Did you, did you, when you, <clears throat> so did you submit kind of, you, did you submit the whole book straight away, or did you submit three chapters? Cause sometimes I broke a lot of rules, so if okay. anyone's listening to this, <laughs> I don't do what I did. <laughs> well, it's, good that, it's good that they know there's another way. There is, there, and that's the thing, there is no one way, like every story, is, every journey into publishing is different. I did a writing course called the Faber Academy, okay. which was like a six-month novel course. And you, you go once a week on Thursdays and every Sunday, fourth Saturday. So it's pretty much self-led. You have to do all the work at home, but you go and you connect with like 15 other people in your classroom with your tutor. And at the end of that course, there's an opportunity to pitch your opening of your novel to a room full of agents, which is horrendous. Oh like, God, it's literally like, you know, you're walking up like this and everyone's like... <gasps> and then you have to read and you have two minutes to, to do this reading in front of like... 55 agents or whatever so I had a lot of interest from that day but the one agent that I really wanted wasn't there so I went to the slush pile with her and was pulled out a day like I submitted on Sunday and by Tuesday she'd signed me so it was like a whirlwind oh my god but I and I was like great well that was really hard work I didn't sleep for five months but now I've got this amazing book deal but then Penguin were like okay well obviously we love the book but go away and double it because I'd only written I had written what I thought was a full book at 55,000 words this is how naive I was a nurse going into being a writer I thought 55,000 words the book has got a beginning a middle and an end it's finished Penguin asked me to double it just asked me to write Millie's voice another 55,000 words so so yeah, that was my kind of process in, into the actual publishing. Yeah. It took a long time after that editing. How long, how long did it take you to write that, that additional? Uh, really fast, but I feel like, I mean, I tend to go in really hard. I don't, I spend a lot of time thinking and, and Penguin asked me to have those three months off because I was absolutely exhausted from working 65 hours and writing. And so I think, and I didn't read my manuscript. This is really key because what you should do is finish your manuscript and you have to put it away at least for a month if not two if not three months and it's really hard to do but you have to do that because then when you come back you can actually see what the absolute terrible mess you've created or where to change things are so when penguin gave me this set of notes 18 pages of editorial notes basically saying don't lose the voice and double the text 
I was like, I can't, I can't. I literally had an adult tantrum. I threw the notes on the floor. I was in Australia and I was like, oh, I can't do this. Had a massive shot of gin and I was like, okay. And I read them again and again. And then I read the manuscript and because I'd had that three month break, I could totally see what needed to be done. And yeah. I was like, wow, this is so crap. I really need to work on this. But... And it was just Millie's voice and I had to grow the plot around her. So that that space and that distance from your work is absolutely imperative. Did, well, it sounds like it was quite a sacrifice. Do you find, did you think... Right, I'm not going to see friends. Yeah. I'm not going to go out. I'm going to miss social occasions. I basically, it. yeah. I mean, it is a standing joke. I had the hairiest legs. Like, I didn't even shave my legs during the process. <laughs> I didn't drink. I didn't date. I didn't see my friends. I would very occasionally see them for like a coffee. But I really wasn't like in a place where I could discuss what I was doing or no one knew what I was writing about. It was very difficult for me to write and it required me to go incredibly deep into my darkest parts of imagination what? and to feel immersed by that you know sort of process it's funny you say that because that's what we wanted to ask you about how did you keep yourself safe when you <laughs> went in yeah. to such a dark yeah. place and dealing with such traumatic psychological issues what did you take any steps to think right I need to yeah. be able to come out of this I think I you know from being a mental health nurse I really pulled on my training that when you're working in mental health you have to remain sane yourself it's very difficult sometimes when you're continually surrounded by damage and trauma traumatized people but it it was just a case of of keeping those boundaries really clear and starting the creative process but also coming out of the creative process so I developed a, a sort of routine where I had this one particular song that I would listen to before I started writing Millie and one particular the same song I would listen to once I'd finished writing Millie so it was almost like this start and the finish to the process and then I could leave her but it was I did become quite obsessive I had a I don't plot so I'm you know in writing there's the plotters and the pantsers so I'm very much seat of the pants gal who's like here we go are you guys you guys but it's so interesting because you just don't quite know where you're going so I had this huge um wall of just post-it notes which is like a literary game of chess where I was like just moving them around during the night so it was quite a mad process but I actually really enjoyed it because I was able to indulge that that madness because I'd been holding on to this kind of emotion and this feeling about this girl for a long time it was actually quite a relief to be able to be with her and to be able to bring her to life but sounds very therapeutic it was very therapeutic because it was a lot obviously to do with my work this book being inspired by those kind of conversations I'd had so it was therapeutic but but quite mad so yeah you have to have a good a good sort of head on you to go that deep (laughs) that's going to be your kind of writing style going forward like having to kind of isolate yourself like that yeah Yeah. I just will obviously we can talk a little bit about this at the end book two the dreaded (laughs) book two but (laughs) but really honestly I went to Cornwall recently and just took a beach out on my own and didn't speak to anyone for three weeks and I switched my phone off and sort of 65,000 words later you know I'd come out of that kind of state and I knew who my main character was so I think I am kind of the, the girl in the wood and the cabin in the trees kind of girl which isn't great for your social life or your, <laughs> or your love life but it's, I'm able to do that because I don't have kids I don't have responsibilities I'm able to very much immerse myself but I think writers like to do that that's why they have cabins and sheds <laughs> the only reason why there's cabins or sheds <laughs> <laughs> they were made specifically for people to write absolutely. in absolutely yeah <laughs> bloody gardeners taking our sheds away um, do you think it's important for writers to include their own experience I don't know if it's important I don't I don't I think it's impossible not to I think that's how I feel so much of what you create is your own experiences or how you see the world or what you want to find out about the world and it really wasn't until when you create a piece of art I've realized that you know all of a sudden you ha- you have to sell this piece of art so you have this publishing deal and then you have to go and talk about it to everybody and you're like well hang on I've just finished this mad creative process I don't really know why I've written this or what's happening but I 
have recognised, I'm now sort of six months after publication, I've re- I can really start to see my own experiences bleeding through the text and my own kind of, you know, life and, and some of the isms. And it wasn't until people that I love who know me without read the book, and I didn't let them read it until it was published because I was like, ah! <laughs> but they were able to read it differently. Mm. They were able to see, like, quicker than I could, the slight kind of just the language or the weird or the situations they were like that was when we and I was like oh my god that was when we you know so I think so much of you is it is in your work definitely yeah it's, it's impossible if you're creating I think authentically and from like the bottom of your soul it's really hard not to put yourself in there as well yeah how, how come you decided not to have your friends read it or your or your family read it was that was that kind of like a conscious like I want to surprise you or was it kind of more of like a <laughs> You know, what, what, how come you decided to do that? I feel maybe that, like, when you... You know when you have a conversation with people that you know really well, they know you really well, and, and the advice, the best of intentions, but it can sometimes hold you back, or it can sometimes put your brakes on. You start thinking, oh, maybe I can't do that, or maybe I shouldn't do that. Or So for me, it was just this completely pure process that... I just wanted to that I wanted to do I wanted to do on my own and I just what my agent and my editor were the first people to see it for like a year and a half and no we were very private about the work because I was quite emotional about it and actually we were supposed to publish this in August last year but I wasn't ready I couldn't really talk about the work without feeling very emotional about it and wondering whether I'd done the right thing by writing about this girl and whether I would isolate these children even further and weirdly in the book Mike who's Millie's foster father writes about her secretly and that is the parallel to me how I felt about writing about these kind of kids and whether it was all right to do that so I think it was protecting the work but also just like I really don't want to tell anyone because everyone's gonna be like what what are you writing about a female serial killer I love that you you chose a female serial killer yeah even though there are some books about it's not yeah was that kind of like a did you was that kind of something that you really wanted to do was to write about a female or was it to explore the kind of mother-daughter bond as well yeah I, again it wasn't so much of a conscious decision I, I never never thought to write about a man really I never thought well I'm going to write about women or write about a man it was always going to be a mother and a daughter and I think you know from being a children's mental health nurse I have witnessed some extremely psychologically violent women in relationships toxic relationships with their daughter of course it didn't extend to the extent that Millie's situation does in the book this is fiction and this is supposed to be a thriller so you know we had to ramp up some of the um so so for me it was it was always exploring that that aspect and i think it's it's unexplored and we should be talking about you know that the, the female sort of the mother and daughter relationship is incredibly powerful and can be incredibly damaging yeah so um so obviously a lot of books get described as gripping yeah, it's hot in here. <laughs> to take my hat off. <laughs> Roasting. So a lot of books get described as gripping, and Good Me, Bad Me truly earns that label. Um, how do you keep your audience hooked? Like, how do you, is is it something? Have you always read thrillers, or is this something that just kind of just came from you? Because like, mm. it is so you don't as soon as you know it's like you yeah. a chapter, you have to read five more. <laughs> I've all, have always read thrillers, you know. I but but weirdly the hot. So when people started to describe it as a psychological thriller, I was like, hmm. I really hadn't thought of it that way. For me, this book is a character study and it's an exploration of Millie and her mind. And it's a psychological drama rather than a thriller. I'm so glad people are finding it thrilling. (laughs) It's it's so great. But it's a sort of slow thrilling. You know, it's a very... It unfurls as you go. And there was never any intention for it to be that way. It was exactly how Millie sounds to me and exactly how her world feels so it was a really organic process but then heavily guided by my editors as well but at Penguin they were fantastic they never once said oh you need to make it more sensationalized you need to make it more thrilling actually I spent a lot of time making it less sensationalized and really stripping it right back so 
the reader could very much fill in the dots, the unsaid, which is more terrifying sometimes, isn't it? You're like, oh, you don't know what's happening, so you just have to imagine. So, but yeah, thrillers for me are, are fantastic. Not my first love as books, though. No, so no, now not. I get sent loads to review, <laughs> yeah. which is great. It's such a privilege. But also, I'm like, oh, another thriller. <laughs> well, I I've, rec- I've gone to poetry recently, but that's quite a new love of mine, and now it's just like the biggest love of my life. I can't because people started saying your writing's quite poetic, and I was like, really? So then I started to read poetry, and I absolutely love poetry now. But I think literary, which is a bit of a, a wanky term, can I say that? Yeah, I've said it. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. It's like a books books that basically are beautifully written that take you on a journey and as long as I'm in the character's mind and I really care about characters some of my thrillers are just like these kind of quick throwaway books and I just don't it's like trick the reader I, for me my book was never about tricking the reader it was about you exploring how you felt about this teenager and how it feels being in her head which is quite an intense place to be it, it's quite ex- like because I've only just started it so sorry but I will, I'm sure I'll finish it I'm place. leaving now it's interesting how you um because obviously it's all told through Millie's voice or yeah. Annie's voice and she um like the way that you're obviously feeling really sorry for her but then you're also feeling there's kind of all these little hints and stuff like that and it's it's yeah it's such a interesting it's such mm. an interesting way of like of writing it you know yeah. you feel sympathy for her but you also feel a bit, a bit scared like, uh-uh. and you yeah. also kind of feel like you know there's you know something else something obviously you know something's going to happen yeah lots of things are going to happen yeah sure it's, yeah it's just um, it's just one big gray area and i yeah. think that's what i wanted the book to be like a series of questions and i really view my writing as an extension of my nursing and so by using the tool of fiction which is powerful and reaches you know hundreds of different countries around the world now you know we can have these conversations about these kind of kids so it, it is supposed to provoke those ooh feelings yeah. and actually a, a reader in Ireland put it in the freezer when she finished it I know that's what so cute I think that was little women that you put in the freezer yeah. so it's more emotional oh, but yeah. she was like oh my god so I put it in the freezer when she'd done so I was like that is hilarious I know well that's job awesome. done <laughs> <laughs> getting into your writing process a little bit yeah I read an interview in which you said and I quote oh, god a, a writer's desk can be a lonely place and for me the warmth and light a candle gives is comforting <laughs> and encourages my creativity apart from this wonderful tip that is so else? wanky as well isn't it no, do you know like what? It. I used to write I used to light loads of candles when I yeah. was writing my book but that was because I was too scared couldn't to put afford the, heat, the power bill too scared to put the heater on when my housemates were out of the house Aww. so I would put on all my clothes like literally all of them oh, and no. light but I only had tea lights so I had to light like 20 of them and then they burn down after an hour and a half, so I have to get another 20 yeah. to light them. And, it's yeah. like a shrine, and isn't then, it? Just and surrounded. then not move. Don't want to put the, the heating on, but happily risk burning the house down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did but, you have them in dishes, the tea lights, at least? Like, I hate this idea I, of you just sitting there with this massive <laughs> fire threat just all around you. <laughs> Let's say, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, Excellent. safety first. The fire safety officers. Okay, yeah. That's a good tip for writing a thriller, just feel <laughs> in danger. Just feel the fear. <laughs> Surround yourself with fire, like I do. Um, apart from that, obviously. Yeah. Great tip. Um, how else would you suggest to writers especially you know debut uh, new writers and mm. debut writers you know how do you how can you improve your creativity God, it's, it's quite it's quite an interesting process isn't it because for everyone it's different and you've got to find your what your tools are but and especially because I'm quite a new writer so I'm, I'm in the second time round now with book two I'm, I'm working out my process and what I need but I I need that solitude that time on my own and book two is very different from my first book I'm listening to music rather than songs so my book second book set in Scotland so I've got these noise cancelling headphones where I, I literally shut the curtains and just listen to like 
music like um, Braveheart, like the soundtrack, I know, I have a good week because I'm writing, I love to have a week because I write. So I think um, I find movement really helpful as well, and I don't mean going to the gym, sorry, (laughs) but moving, like whether it's um, walking by the ocean or whether it's actually getting on a bus or a train. So I find travelling is very, very like motivating for my creativity, but everyone has different things. Reading is, if you can't write anything, if you're stuck, read a book. That is writing. That is exactly the same as writing, and more than likely it'll unlock something. But yeah, people have lots of kind of different ways of doing it. For me, it's just quiet time. I have lots of voices in my head and lots of noise and I really like it. But when you want to write the real true voice, you have to sit with these noises until everything else is gone. And then you start hearing what really it is you're writing about. So you have to have patience. It's a little bit like meditating. That sounds really, I'm just a complete, I'm not, <laughs> no, put your candles on and meditate. I think it will make sense. There's something about it, like it's in, it's in the same way meditating can often go badly, writing can as well, but there is something about that stillness. That's where the magic is, yeah. the power. And I think we're so busy that we just forget how to be still on our own with all these like <gasps> thoughts. But that really is where the magic is, I believe. So do you meditate? Is that part of your... I, writing for me is meditation. Okay. So the, but before before I even start to write, I will put certain music on with my headphones and the whole world around me is gone. But I just start to have big breaths and I really start to call to whatever it is that I'm trying to, to bring. So it is a little bit like call to your... Whatever's in your inner, I don't know what it's called, but like your, I have this ball of sort of energy, so you have to call to that. I don't think you can just. Then some people write on trains and stuff yeah, yeah. in between lunch breaks, so it's a really different process. Mm. I like to go really deep. I like to cry and go, go kind of like really open up loads of emotional channels that maybe I've blocked or maybe are blocked by just being in the, in daily life. So have you always written? Has it always been something that you've done? No, and we were talking about this earlier because I think that is another interesting point. I I wrote at school, obviously, and then at university, but the last thing I wrote was in 2002. So, and I had felt great, I, like I was saying earlier, a lot of people who are acutely creative hear voices and see quite visual scenes, and that, that was always me. And as a, as a younger person, I loved that. I loved that about myself, and that I didn't speak to anyone about it. It was just my crazy mind that I loved. And then because I'd stopped writing and became a nurse, I hadn't, didn't even open up a laptop until I started writing Good Me, Bad Me. I became such a restless heap of energy because I wasn't like honouring my creativity and I wasn't writing. So when I did write Good Me, Bad Me, it tore out of me. But the signs were always there. Like I was a voracious reader. I would listen and watch everything that was going on. I would notice stuff. Um, I would tell stories. I would write letters. So things like that. These are the clues that you're a writer. I think it was like, who's, is it Kafka who said something like a monster, a non-writing writer is a monster causing insanity. And there was something in that because I was going quite mad. And then when I wrote, I was like, thank God, this is who I am. That's quite interesting because you don't necessarily know that that's what's wrong with you no you definitely don't and I started to do like crazy stuff like moving countries like from London to to Sydney then I'd moved to Barcelona and then I'd change my job and then I and it was all the time I was just trying to outrun this creativity and coming from a really traditional family who just didn't believe in writers it was this whole like oh I've got to get a job that's tick 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 so by the time I wrote Give Me Bad Me and I was 33 it was like oh thank god I have to pretend anymore like is this all and I loved my job as a nurse but I think all along I was a writer I just wasn't writing and how do your family feel about it now yeah I mean obviously it's tangible it's successful I guess if you're an older school generation it's like oh you're making a little bit of money it's selling so so yeah it's it's been an adjustment for them but it was quite hard for me as well to give up nursing I felt really guilty about it because I was a good nurse I loved the kids and all of a sudden my job is just to think <laughs> like really like so I, I felt really guilty for it for ages you know I gave up nursing two almost three years ago now so it's been a, a big adjustment for everybody 
Yeah. Um, so let's talk about you getting your, your deal, your book deal, because it's obviously, so you said that you got your agent within, you sent it on the Sunday, you mm. got, and you got your agent on a Tuesday, and then how, what, you got a deal, and then obviously it all went pretty crazy from what you just said earlier, so I'm sure our readers would love to, <laughs> readers, listeners, would love to hear about that. I think, I mean, every, the, the important thing to remember is everyone's journey is totally different, but my journey was like on supersonic speed, so it was a little bit like, it took me a year and a half to catch up with what had actually happened, but I submitted on a Sunday through the slash pile. So people listening who think the slash pile doesn't work, it works. I went into the slash pile. Many of my friends who are writers now also have pulled from the slash pile. I submitted on a Sunday. Um, my right, my agent, Juliet Mushins, read it that day. We arranged to meet on the Tuesday and she was the agent I wanted. So I signed with her. Really good to know who you want. Don't accept your first offer. Be clear about who you're going to see and... Your agent is your most important. A, it's your first editor, but also she will or he will change your whole career. So you have to choose the right agent. How did you? Sorry, Jim. No. How, how did you? So how did you find her? How did you know that she was the right one for you? So I. She's very visible, Julia. She does a lot of um, videos on YouTube. She does a lot of education. She kind of busts a lot of the myths about these agents sitting in their desk going yes, no, yes, no. Like the agents want amazing work and they want to, to publish writers. So it, she is an Essex girl who's like Oxford or Cambridge graduate. I can't remember. She's got the balls of steel. She's got this kind of feistiness. She, all of the videos of her, I just knew that her and I would gel. And it's really, really important because you want an agent who not only will hold you when you're doing well, but when you're not doing well, or your work's not selling, will then help you make it sell, you know, not just drop you. So, and she has done that with so many of her authors who have like a book that hasn't sold very well. And then they've come back a year later with something that sold for six figures. So she will continually work with you. So all of those things are just great human being qualities. Yeah, yeah. But, but also she's an amazing saleswoman. So fearless. It says all the things that you just don't want to say. You're like, okay. You know, as a nurse, I was like, yes, you know, you'd accept the first offer. She's like, no, I will sell it all around the world. Like that's the way she talks, you know? And I'm like, oh God. So your she agent, did. she did. Yeah. <laughs> so, so weirdly, and what's interesting to note is when you get your agent, you can actually then edit with your agent for for as long as your agent thinks you need to edit for. So that's your first editing experience. So I know some she signed some writers who edit with, with for a year, a year and a half before she even shows it to publishers. So you get your agent. For me and her, we worked for a week on the book. It went back and forth. We worked really fast, her and I. And it went back and forth about three times in that week. And I still had no idea what, what was happening. I was just going with... She was, she was like, work on this character. We'll make Morgan less. And, and I was just responding to that. And then I think it was the Monday. So we'd signed just, just under a week ago. And she said, it's ready. And I was like, okay, what does, what does it mean? It's ready. And she said, it's ready to go out to publishers. So the next thing that happens is, oh, it's awful, this process, is that she'll send it to who she thinks might be interested. So that's, again, her knowing her business, knowing the publishers who would go for this kind of book. And she sent it to Penguin and one other publishing house. And Penguin offered within an hour put money on the table within an hour yeah it was really oh really God, fast Juliet was just like right. and then so they wanted to they wanted to take world rights and Juliet was like no you can have UK rights and then I will sell it in all the different territories so that was that was kind of two weeks into the process and then I think we had nine foreign deals done the week after that and then another one and another one and and I was just like gosh gave my job up <laughs> so it was really fast and it, it took me about a year and a half to catch up with because I had to then write the book because as, as I was saying to you guys earlier, you know, it was 55,000 words when it was bought. Yeah. So it was bought on the strength of the voice and the overall premise. Yeah. And the whole thing was if I can maintain the voice and grow a plot around it, 
then this is the book that they would want. But Did you feel quite a lot of pressure? Loads of pressure. Yeah. I wept when I got my editorial notes. I was like, I, I don't even know how to write. I don't know what I'm doing. 23 countries have bought it, and now I have to really write a book that they've all bought. And what if I can't? What are Like, all these horrible things. But that's when, like, my... Mili- I went to boarding school, and military kind of... I think that kind of discipline kicked in. I was like, I can, and I will. And I would get up every morning at 6, and I would work, and I would work on it, and work on it, and work on it. And I would send it off, and it would come back. And it's like a marathon to remain energised. But I did that in Australia because I needed um, a different environment to edit in. So I wrote it in a basement flat in London in winter. Like, no, no natural light, no no social life. And then I went to Australia. Those and candles. Yeah, no, <laughs> candles. I only, I only like one, actually. Just one candle. <laughs> I like it best. I like it. No, I like sort of coconut or vanilla. Okay. Just so, yeah, something soft. So, But yeah, it, it was an amazing process for me. But I mean, everyone has a different journey. And yeah. But I think the biggest tip for me, for other people, is just to get the right agent. Yeah. trust your agent make sure someone you can cry in front of as well as laugh because it's yeah. going to be tears <laughs> yeah oh my god um so you're you are now on to book two yes yes so i know obviously it's you know you can't say too much yes but can you tell us what you can say right i have to get this right what am i allowed to say <clears throat> so i just handed in the first draft of book two which has gone to my editor and my agent who are my first eyes and it is going to be another literary thriller another heavy character study um, a man named Jack is the main character. It's set on a sort of scarcely inhabited Scottish island, and all is not as it seems. Oh, <laughs> oh thanks, guys! <laughs> um, you'll have to come and you'll have, we'll, we'll have to come back and do yeah. another podcast when it comes out because I just think it just sounds so sounds good. good. Do, do you? How much experience do you have of Scotland? I grew up in Scotland, so I and also in Good Me Bad Me, like the set, the setting is Millie's head. It's her mind, so actually it could have been, it, this could be in any city, really. So I was really keen to use a strong sense of place in my next book, basically to challenge myself to write descriptively instead of psychologically. So, and yeah, I moved to Scotland when I was five and grew up there for 20 years. So it's a little bit like going back to this wild sort of upbringing that I had in these hills. So. And, and do you think you'd go back to write some of it? In Scotland, yeah. yeah, I think, well, a couple of my friends have um, live on Isla, so, oh, nice. yeah, so I think maybe I might go and do the whole island thing, so it's such a cliche, isn't it? No, Just not at all. To a cabin on an island, but like, I don't know, if I've got time, yeah. then definitely. So I, I want this book to, to, to beat to a slightly different rhythm and to be, I suppose, a lot wilder with its descriptions and to be out in the kind of, you know, island settings are great anyway, yeah. it's like pressure cookers, yeah. so... Yeah. Oh, it sounds good. It does sound great. <laughs> what lessons do you think that you're you've learnt with book one that you're taking into book two? I wish I hadn't learnt so much. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem. This is what's happened. When I wrote book one, I knew nothing. All I knew was I needed to tell this girl's story, and I didn't really care about plot or narrative arc and exposition words I still don't really understand and so now writing book two I sort of already had in my head well that's not going to work I need to drive the plot forward I need to you know bed these characters in I need to do this reveal and so I all of that's been quite unhelpful (laughs) so so I had to try and forget that and really just write from right from the place that's deepest inside you that you can go not your head but I think it's a combination of your gut and your heart you have to write from that place and yeah just and trust yourself trust your instincts I mean your editor will tell you if it's crap but I think gotta write the thing that keeps you up at night not the thing that you think might be popular or might sell or you know might make a great movie or you know I know a lot of writers write to make movies and it's just not who I am so I turned down a movie deal for this um I wasn't ready and I wasn't sure if it was the right thing to do with this piece of work so yeah I think trust your gut but write write as deep as you can go yeah till it frightens you 
Oh. I love that. That's <laughs> such great advice. We it does had... probably sound a bit mad, though. No, I think it just sounds... It, we don't, you know... Just got to breathe, are... like, get into it. Really go to those places that you don't want to go. The places that are so blocked, they're just, like, waiting to be, like, yeah. brought to life. So, yeah. It sounds like you, like, obviously, it's quite in- the writing process is quite an intense process for you. Yeah. So what do you do to completely zone out from that and just, like, yeah... You really that. want to know how much yes. I can say on that? <laughs> I have a theory. It's like work like a captain, play like a pirate. And Excellent. so when I'm working, I am super disciplined. I literally, I love my friends, I love my people, but I'm like, I'm not talking to you, you know, at all. And then once I come out to play, I play quite hard. I enjoy okay. myself. So whether it's like going off to Amsterdam, see with some of my friends over there, or whatever, I yeah, I have a super chill. So okay. yeah, but nice. I work, yeah, you've got to have a good balance, definitely. That's a great motto. We'll <laughs> be more piratey. <laughs> yeah, I do like that motto. Okay, cool. Thank That's you it. so much, Ali. No worries. Thank you so much. We're so grateful for you coming to chat to us. Absolutely. Ali's going to be speaking at our riff up event on the tenth of August, which might even be today if we launched this when we said we would. Yeah, <laughs> so please come along. And it's already happened, and it was oh. brilliant. <laughs> if you are listening she after, was. she <laughs> was so good. Um, Ali, thank you so much. Thank, thank you for having me. Please. The Riff Raff Podcast is hosted by co-founders Amy Baker and Rosie Edwards. Come say hey at the-riffraff.com 